Preparing Europa Clipper for its voyage to Jupiter's ocean moon. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Designing, reviewing, redesigning, building, integrating, and testing at every step along the way. Creating a spacecraft is not work for the timid or anyone lacking patience. And then there's living in a state of healthy paranoia. That's what Mission System Manager Al Kangawala calls it. And that's to say nothing of doing all this during one of the least healthy times in a hundred years. And yet, Europa Clipper is making steady progress toward the beginning of its mission to that world with a hidden water ocean. The one that scientists and science fiction writers like the late Arthur C. Clarke have long suspected might be a likely place to find life. We'll get a great update from Al in a few minutes. We're also coming up on the 2021 Humans to Mars Summit from Explore Mars. I've learned that I'll once again moderate the closing session with a bunch of Mars All-Stars answering a simple question, why Mars? You can register for this free gathering at exploremars.org. We've also got the link on this week's episode page at planetary.org slash radio. H2M will run September 13 through 15. Wait till you see the amazing lineup of speakers and panelists, including NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. Is it an impact crater? A volcano? No, it's the first hole drilled by Perseverance in Jezero Crater on Mars. But the image that tops the August 20 edition of the Downlake sure looks bigger We're waiting for the rover to make another attempt to collect a sample for eventual return to Earth. It's almost certain that the Japanese Space Agency's Martian Moons Exploration Mission will bring back a sample from Phobos years earlier. A new study says ancient asteroids could have blasted life from the surface of the Red Planet to its moon. And you've probably heard that development of NASA's human landing system is once again on hold. Blue Origin has filed a suit against NASA because of the agency's award of only one contract to competitor SpaceX. So you can forget about boots back on the moon by 2024. Then again, that was never going to happen so soon. These stories and more great stuff are at planetary.org downlink. Loreano Alberto Congawala is simply Al to almost everyone. Al has one of those minds that guides spacecraft across the solar system and then through the complicated trajectories that enable them to gather wonderful science. He managed the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab's mission design and navigation section prior to becoming part of the Europa Clipper team. He was a NASA astronaut selection finalist in 2000 and currently serves on the Astrodynamics Committee of the International Astronautical Federation. He didn't stop with BS, MS, and PhD degrees in aeronautics, astronautics, but also earned a BS in Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Science from MIT. If you stay through the end of our conversation recorded just hours before we published this week's show, you'll understand why he loves making presentations to high school and college audiences about our exploration of the solar system. You'll also hear me mention Al's colleague and past planetary radio guest Bob Papalardo. Bob is project scientist for Europa Clipper at JPL. 
Al, thank you so much for joining us on Planetary Radio and welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We have talked with Europa Clipper project scientist Bob Pappalardo and and other members of the science team on the mission, but not that often with other colleagues like you who are helping to design all of this. So it's a pleasure to do this, especially as we see uh, in a, a fairly recent press release from JPL that the spacecraft is coming together pretty well. Uh, do you feel good about the progress? We're very excited. This is this is a very exciting time uh, to think that we are doing our work and seeing the hardware come together and our plans for bringing this hardware to remote places of the solar system to do these uh, unique investigations is really a, been a shot in the arm. I'm going to get more deeply into the status of the spacecraft and, and the mission overall. Uh, but uh, just a couple of words about what you do first. I noted that you've been at JPL for nearly 30 years in a variety of jobs. And I want to tell you that I, I very much enjoyed, I didn't get to watch all of it, but I think I watched two of the five portions of a course that you teach, Deep Space Navigation, which I guess is a specialty of yours. Yeah, that was my technical background coming to JPL, navigation, determining the trajectories of the spacecraft headed towards and at remote destinations in the solar system, being able to know where to point the the ground antennas at Earth towards the spacecraft to send commands and receive data. Yeah, it's been very exciting because uh, this type of work gives you the opportunity to learn about the science of many different missions, those around the Earth, between the Earth and the Moon, and beyond. Your title on the mission is Mission System Manager. What does that work include? The mission system is the ensemble of the things that are needed to properly operate the spacecraft and its instruments at at its remote destination. One big aspect of this mission is the trajectory. We don't just fly to Europa and land. We're going to fly by Europa many times. Each flyby is kind of tailored to achieve some of the science as part of the total science uh, goals of the mission. So each flyby gives us an opportunity to come close to Europa, but each flyby changes the trajectory of the spacecraft significantly. One interesting piece of trivia is that we bring a lot of propellant with us to accomplish this mission, but the change in velocity of the spacecraft uh, that can be accomplished with that propellant is about 5% of the total trajectory change that you need. The rest of it we get from flying by uh, Europa and in this case, the Earth and and Mars as well. So to us, Europa is not just the science destination, it's also a a sort of propellant depot as well. There are so many components of this spacecraft coming from so many different facilities, sometimes leaving one for another and then going back again. I'm, I, I mean, that has to be a challenge in itself. How does the project keep track of everything that has to come together? Well, managing schedule and schedule margin is an important part of the job. We do our best to kind of allocate times and milestones to accomplish the shuttling of the components needed to create the larger, you know, the subsystems and, and modules resulting ultimately in the full assembly of the spacecraft along with the instruments. From my first days on this project, the creation of the schedule and the management of the margin against that schedule has been a very important part of our work and something we track day in, day out and and month to month. I think that's gone really well. And we've had a, a great team of people with which to do that. 
I talked with Scott Bolton, the uh, principal investigator for the Juno mission now and then, and he has talked about the contacts that are maintained between his team and yours. And your mission profile does seem, as I said, to, to have a lot in common with the, the Juno mission that is orbiting Jupiter. I, I, have you had personal contact with, with folks on the Juno side? And, and have you seen some of the benefits of being able to talk to them? And not just about trajectory, but, but about things like surviving that terrible radiation out there near Jupiter. Yeah, absolutely. We have many team members who have uh, served on Juno uh, in the hmm. past. Earlier in my career in uh, a role in line management, I supported Juno. So it's very exciting to watch them uh, transition into their extended mission, where they'll be performing flybys of the Galilean moons, in, including Europa. Uh, so we're very excited to you know, hear about their science from these, from these uh, ongoing flybys. Yes, and then during our prime mission, we were we did keep in touch on how the spacecraft was doing. Its orbit is inclined with respect to the Jupiter orbit plane, so it's a little different from the Clipper orbit. But nonetheless, you're in the Jupiter environment, and you're going to learn things. And so we've we've been in communication about their findings. But I have to say, yeah, we're you know going back the last couple of months and looking a year ahead, these upcoming flybys are uh, very much on our minds has to be reassuring to see that Juno has, if anything, survived that uh, that horrible radiation environment better than a lot of people expected. Yeah, it, the spacecraft has done great, and uh, we're very, very happy for them and uh, appreciate the opportunity to learn from their experiences. We mentioned that Juno and the Europa Clipper as well are going to be orbiting Jupiter. Now, in the case of Clipper, why not just orbit Europa? Europa has been a, a destination of uh, high interest for for decades. And many different mission architectures have been proposed for studying Europa, including that of a dedicated orbiter. One of the challenges is dealing with the fact that Europa is orbiting in this high radiation environment uh, due to the strong magnetic field of Jupiter and the high energy particles trapped in it. If you're orbiting Europa, you're in the midst of that high radiation environment. And so your time is limited unless you brought more and more shielding. And if we were gonna you know, expend mass on the spacecraft design, we would rather put that mass into instruments, <laughs> uh, scientific instrument, and that'd be preferable to more shielding. Teams that have studied these types of missions in the past have struggled with it. And one idea that came out uh, was to just dip in, do, do your science during a, a period of like, let's say a day or so around closest approach to Europa, then leave the high radiation environment and downlink data at a more, let's say, more relaxed cadence, and then repeat after uh, a few dozen flybys, you could start to accrue uh, the coverage that you would have achieved through a dedicated orbiter anyway. So we, mm. we feel like we're getting the best of both worlds. No, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a moment. So let's say that Clipper on one of its passes find some particularly interesting feature on the surface of this moon. A plume, let's say, we should be so lucky. You got to know that Bob Papalardo and the rest of the science team are going to be pounding on your door and saying, how soon can we get back to that? So how soon would you be able to get back to a feature like that? That's a great question. Um, and that's, that's really at the heart of the mission operations design is working with science to understand what can we respond to quickly? What 
really deserves more time to respond to. If a particular instrument encounters something interesting, like they detect a new species uh, on a particular flyby and want to re-optimize their sensors, the operation of their sensors to be more receptive to particular species, we can do that. We can support that uh, with relatively little effort. I mean, our baseline design really accommodates that. Some of our instruments have gimbals, like our mm. narrow angle camera. What we can do is also support updating the uh, mosaic of images that are going to be generated from flyby to flyby. We have some ability to readjust them, that mosaic to respond to findings from images that have been downlinked along the way. It won't, it won't be instantaneous, but we do intend to allow for re-optimizing those, those profiles. Moving the trajectory is probably the one, one of the items that requires the longest lead time. And we've worked with science to socialize that and, and, and show, you know, <laughs> making a change here means losing something that you might have already uh, pre-planned and accounted for. So we certainly have studied astrodynamics mechanisms to help us cover new things. But I think studying it and having a well-instrumented, in the case of a, a plume, having a well-instrumented, dedicated plume flyby is something that require more more lead time to to plan and, and work out with science. So to me, responding to findings is part of our job. There's a spectrum of response time constants, and the, the plume scenario is probably one of the ones with the longest time constants. I like how you put that, socializing the science team. That, that's, that's a nice way to put it. There was another word you used, which we should clarify. When you mentioned species, I suspect you were talking about chemical species, not necessarily a biological species, a living thing. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're referring to uh, elements and compounds. Yeah. Very exciting stuff. Uh, are we on track for a launch in not very long, 2024? Yes, we we're doing very well. Uh, again, it is under ch uh, challenging circumstances, but. Uh, we're just really proud of how everyone has been pulling together to get this done. Yes, yeah, so we're we're on track for a launch in October of 2024 on a Mars-Earth gravity assist trajectory to Jupiter. And we'll arrive in a Jupiter system in April of 2030. 2030. All right. I'm not going to think right now about how old I'll be by then. <laughs> I cannot wait. And there are a lot of us out here who... Uh, are saying Godspeed to uh, Europa Clipper and you and the entire team. Before I let you go, I, I want to ask uh, how you ended up in this line of work. I've always been interested in exploring the solar system. I got hooked by watching the Voyager launches uh, as a kid. And in the back of my mind, I thought, well, wherever they do that, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to find out more about that. And then I had the benefit of going to a, a science summer school. It was a uh, hosted by the state of Pennsylvania hmm. uh, as a junior in high school. And there I learned about how to really propagate trajectories uh, using software. And we looked at uh, propagating the trajectory of Skylab. Uh, once I learned how, how it really works to, to develop, model, and, and design trajectories and navigate to them, I, I was hooked. I, you know, it, was just, I, it was just something I, I wanted to do ever since then. Just one more thing. I found a great quote from you on NASA's 
Solar System Exploration Facebook page. We'll link to this as well. You talked about a message that you once received from your grandfather in Colombia. Do you remember this? Yes, yes. Um, it was really a, a letter to me when I was just a, a, a baby. And um, I guess I had written a, a card to him for Father's Day. And he he took the moment to write back and just uh, say that he was, you know, uh, just really supportive of me and really wanted to make sure that, I mean, to him, his his daughter, my, my mom, came to the United States to teach Spanish in, in the U.S. high schools and didn't know if she was going to come back um, and was just sending a letter, letter in support to her and, and to me, hoping that I would uh, listen to my parents and follow in their footsteps to try to be a, a good citizen of wherever I was. And to be helpful to wherever you were going to be. In this case, my adoptive country. And so, yeah, I've always I've always treasured that letter. Uh, this is a very everyone's grandparents are special, but I feel like to have such um, vision as to how one a, a child's life was going to evolve, having never really left the country, his his native country, um, says a lot to me, and uh, I've never forgotten that. I, I hope to live up to uh, his expectations and uh, really help make this, this kind of work something that is really inspiring to, to the younger people in particular. Because when we talk about years like 2030, you have to think that you know, the people who are going to operate this mission uh, as we go around uh, Jupiter and fly by Europa, those people are in college and high school right now. So we need to reach out and, and inspire them. And I feel like the way my grandfather inspired me is, is a model that I would like to emulate. I hope some of those young people who are the future scientists and engineers that will be uh, revealing Europa to us with Europa Clipper are listening to us right now. Uh, I think you uh, gave plenty of, have given plenty of reason for, uh, for pride, Al. A job well done. Thank you so much for uh, giving us this status report on Europa Clipper and for sharing that, uh, that great uh, experience, that great uh, letter that uh, your grandfather sent you uh, years ago. Best of uh, continued success to you and the rest of the Europa Clipper team. Thank you very much. Great speaking with you. Al Kangawala is the mission system manager for Europa Clipper at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. By now, all of you who listen to us on one of our wonderful public radio affiliates probably know that we almost always have more to share at planetary.org slash radio. That's true yet again this week as Al takes us even deeper into the mission. Bruce Betts is standing by with a deep dive into the night sky. This is Planetary Radio. LightSail 2 made history with its launch and deployment in 2019, and it's still sailing. Hi everyone, it's Bruce, Program Manager for the Planetary Society's LightSail program. Your support made this happen. Now we need help to continue the adventure. Gifts in support of our extended mission will be matched up to $25,000 by a generous society member. Details are at planetary.org slash S-A-I-L-O-N. That's planetary.org slash sailon. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. 
I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Time again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here he is, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, planetary scientist, astronomer, all-around great guy, Bruce Betts. Welcome. Oh, thanks, man. Oh, you, you really do need a vacation. <laughs> oh, maybe I'll take one. Remember, that's why we're recording early this time. Right. <laughs> you needed a reminder. Here's a good start for that vacation. Wired Magazine now, you know, their last page, they, they do this thing called Six Word Sci-Fi, and they give you a prompt, and then they let people write in, submit their six-word sci-fi stories based on that prompt. Here's the one from the new issue. The prompt is, write a story about a casual encounter with aliens. Here's the winner. It's not my favorite. And it has three aliens sitting in a call center. You know, they have headset mics and the whole bit. That's not the funny part, but it's okay. No, it's not it's bad. Not. Why not? It's a secondary Is it the funny, funny part, part that we're talking about the a casual encounter with aliens? I, I find that funny. Seems unlikely. Go ahead, Matt. I'm sorry. So here's the response that won from uh, at phone 96 on Twitter. So about your planet's extended warranty, <laughs> which, is, which is pretty good, you know, coming from a call center guy. Then here's my favorite. Remember, casual encounters with aliens. This from a John Wagner, quite unexpectedly, cocktail recipes were exchanged. <laughs> I really, I just, well, that is unexpected. Definitely. Tell us about the night sky. I bet you were, you were expecting it would be great. I think I think it will be great. There are planets, and they're bright, and you can see the brightest planet, you know, besides Earth, uh, over on the western horizon early in the evening. Venus, low down but looking super bright. Turn your view to the other horizon over in the east, and you've got Jupiter and Saturn rising. Jupiter very bright, Saturn looking yellowish to its upper right. Check them out. I need a vacation. You're counting down, aren't you? It's not really a vacation. I mean, it's only kind of a vacation. I'm taking a son to college, so, and exploring hurricanes that shouldn't be there. On to this week in space history. By the way, tell him congratulations. I shall. Voyager 2 was busy two different times during this week in space history. It was flying by Saturn in 1981 and flying by Neptune in 1989. Just as we were uh, told by Linda Spilker on last week's show, a uh, double anniversary. Also, the anniversary of one of the launches. I can't remember which one, but uh, that, that took place in 1977. And they're still going strong-ish. Yeah. On to <laughs> Random Space Fact! The orbital... I think you're going to like this one, Matt. The orbital speed of Mercury, how fast it's going around the sun compared to the orbital speed of Neptune, is about the same as the speed of a fast race car, like Formula One or IndyCar, compared to the speed of a fast-running human. Race car to human, wow. Mercury to Neptune. That's a great one. Thank you for that. You're right. I love it. Thought of that as I was falling asleep last night. And then I you know, confirmed the numbers. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you, you did the fact check. <laughs> yeah. I didn't just make it up. All right. On to the trivia contest. I asked you, what is the tallest mountain on Venus? How did we do, Matt? We got some great responses this week, including a couple of poems. 
I'm going to open with one of those. It's from Gene Lewin in Washington. Within the Maxwell Monte Massif stands the tallest of Venusian peaks, measured up from the planet's mean radius since there's no sea level there, so to speak. Discovered through use of radio waves, Arecibo provided the means, confirmed a bit later by Pioneer 12 with a 1.7 gig radar beam. And though Venus, we know itself, is quite hot, you may want to wax up your skis, because atop of old Scotty Moans, it's only 716 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds delightful and a relaxing vacation spot. Yeah, I'll say. That theme continued, as you'll hear in a moment. Here is our winner, a first-time winner. Congratulations to Milena Mandic who is in Serbia. I think this may be our first winner from that nation. She said, Maxwell Montes Mountain Range, that's the mountain, basically. The highest peak is Scotty Moans, named after the Norse goddess of winter. And she adds, her birthday is in December. So this is destiny to listen for the first time to your podcast and for this to be the question. Sure, why not, Milena? If you if you say so, <laughs> we're we're happy to congratulate you and uh, glad to welcome you to the show as well. What a way to start! You have won yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you have won yourself a copy of Light in the Darkness: Black Holes, the Universe, and Us by astrophysicist Heino Falke, published by uh, Harper One, uh, a fascinating uh, book. Uh, and uh, we'll have the publisher send that your way. Excellent. Maxwell Montes also is one of my favorite answers to a trivia that I asked many, many, many moons ago, which is it's the only feature on Venus not named for a female character or actual person. Uh, That isn't quite true. Alpha and beta regio, but it's the only male named on Venus named for famous Maxwell uh, equations dude who did a bunch of great science. And we do close with uh, something from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild. Maxwell Montes is a mountain standing tall on Venus Plain, reaching almost seven miles in the altitude you'd gain, marked by basin Cleopatra. Quite an impact from above. Max and Cleo, what a combo. On the <laughs> planet named for love. Oh, <laughs> Isn't that sweet? That's adorable. What do you got for next time? Name every type of spacecraft that has carried humans into earth orbit (laughs) i don't mean every individual spacecraft but every type so for example space shuttle counts as one one type and go to planetary.org slash radio contest to find out how to enter and this is earth orbit or beyond There are people out there slapping their foreheads right now, but then there are other people. I can see you who are already digging deep in the Wikipedia. You have until... Or or into your brain. It's it's an interesting question. How many can you name without looking it up? Yeah. And then look it up and give us the right answers. You have until September 1st, Wednesday, September 1st at 8 a.m. to get us this answer. And uh, what the heck, we will award your chance to pick up another robotic spacecraft poster uh, from ChopShopStore.com, run by our friend Thomas Romer. Uh, A whole huge series of your favorite missions, robotic missions, and uh, soon to be including the third series of these, uh, which, you know what, I don't have it in front of me, but I know it's Pioneer, Viking, and... 
something else. Anyway, they're beautiful, and uh, we will give you your choice of those posters if uh, random.org picks you out and you come up with all those different human-carrying spacecraft. I believe we are done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about lions. And tigers and bears, oh my. Uh, have a great time on that uh, little trip delivering your son to uh, to his new uh, university. And uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Take care. That's Bruce Betts, chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week for What's Up? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its always exploring members. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are associate producers josh doyle composed our theme which is arranged and performed by peter schlosser at astro